Section 20, Autobiography of John Stuart Mill. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tony Richardson. Chapter 7, Part 5. General View of the Remainder of My Life. Had I been defeated in the election, I should still have had no reason to regret the contact it had brought me into with large bodies of my countrymen, which not only gave me much new experience, but enabled me to scatter my political opinions rather widely, and, by making me known in many quarters where I had never before been heard of, increased the number of my readers, and the presumable influence of my writings. These latter effects were, of course, produced in a still greater degree when, as much as to my surprises as to that of any one, I was returned to Parliament by a majority of some hundreds over my conservative competitor. I was a member of the House during the three sessions of the Parliament which passed the Reform Bill, during which time Parliament was necessarily my main occupation, except during the recess. I was a tolerably frequent speaker, sometimes of prepared speeches, sometimes extemporaneously. But my choice of occasions was not such as I should have made if my leading object had been parliamentary influence. When I had gained the ear of the House, which I did by a successful speech on Mr. Gladstone's reform bill, the idea I proceeded on was that when anything was likely to be well done, or sufficiently well done, by other people, there was no necessity for me to meddle with it. As I, therefore, in general, reserved myself for work which no others were likely to do, a great proportion of my appearances were on points on which the bulk of the Liberal Party, even the advanced portion of it, either were of a different opinion from mine, or were comparatively indifferent. Several of my speeches, especially one against the motion of the abolition of capital punishment, and another in favor of resuming the right of seizing enemies' goods in neutral vessels, were opposed to what then was, and probably still is, regarded as the advanced liberal opinion. My advocacy of women's suffrage and of personal representation were at the time looked upon by many as whims of my own. But the great progress since made by those opinions and especially the response made from almost all parts of the kingdom to demand for women's suffrage, fully justified the timeliness of those movements, and have made what was undertaken as a moral and social duty a personal success. Another duty which was particularly incumbent on me, as one of the Metropolitan members, was the attempt to obtain a municipal government for the metropolis but on that subject the indifference of the house of commons was such that i found hardly any help or support 
within its walls on the subject however i was the organ of an active and intelligent body of persons outside with whom and not with me the scheme originated and who carried on all the agitations on the subject and drew up the bills my part was to bring in bills already prepared and to sustain the discussion of them during the short time they were allowed to remain before the house after having taken an active part in the work of a committee presided over by mr ireton which sat through the greater part of the session of eighteen sixty six to take evidence on the subject the very different position in which the question now stands in eighteen seventy may justly be attributed to the preparation which went on during those years and which produced but little visible effect at the time but all questions on which there are strong private interests on one side and only the public good on the other have a similar period of incubation to go through the same idea that the use of my being in parliament was to do work which others were not able or not willing to do made me think it my duty to come to the front in defense of advanced liberalism on occasions when the obloquy to be encountered was such as most of the advanced liberals in the house preferred not to incur my first vote in the house was in support of an amendment in favor of ireland moved by an irish member and for which only five english and scotch votes were given including my own the other four were mr bright mr mclaren mr t b potter and mr hadfield and the second speech i delivered was on the bill to prolong the suspension of the habeas corpus in ireland and announcing on this occasion the english mode of governing ireland i did no more than the general opinion of england now admits to have been just but the anger against finianism was then in all its freshness any attack on what finians attacked was looked upon as an apology for them and i was so unfavorably received by the house that more than one of my friends advised me and my own judgment agreed with the advice to wait before speaking again for the favorable opportunity that would be given by the first great debate on the reform bill during this silence many flattered themselves that i had turned out a failure and that they should not be troubled with me any more perhaps their uncomplimentary comments may by force of reaction have helped to make my speech on the reform bill the success it was my position in the house was further improved by a speech in which i insisted on the duty of paying off the national debt before our coal supplies are exhausted and by an ironical reply to some of the tory leaders who had quoted against me certain passages of my writings and called me to account for others especially for one of my considerations on representative government which said that the conservative party was by the law of its composition the stupidest party 
they gained nothing by drawing attention to the passage which up to that time had not excited any notice but the sobriquet of the quote-unquote stupid party stuck to them for a considerable time afterwards having now no longer any apprehension of not being listened to i confine myself as i have sent thought too much to occasions on which my services seemed especially needed and abstained more than enough from speaking on the great party questions with the exception of irish questions and those which concern the working classes a single speech on mr disraeli's reform bill was nearly all that i contributed to the great decisive debates of the last two of my three sessions i have however much satisfaction in looking back to the part i took on the two classes of subjects just mentioned with regard to the working classes the chief topic of my speech on mr gladstone's reform bill was the assertion of their claims to the suffrage a little later after the resignation of lord russell's ministry and the succession of a tory government came the attempt of the working classes to hold a meeting in hyde park their exclusion by the police and the breaking down of the park railing by the crowd though mr beeley's and his leaders of the working men had retired under protest before this took place a scuffle ensued in which many innocent persons were maltreated by the police and the exasperation of the working men was extreme they showed a determination to make another attempt at a meeting in the park to which many of them would probably have come armed the government made military preparations to resist the attempt and something very serious seemed impending at this crisis i really believe that i was the means of preventing much mischief i had in my place in parliament taken the side of the working men and strongly censured the conduct of the government i was invited with several other radical members to a conference with the leading members of the council of the reform league and the task fell chiefly upon myself of persuading them to give up the hyde park project and hold their meeting elsewhere it was not mr beeley's and colonel dixon who needed persuading on the contrary it was evident that these gentlemen had already exerted their influence in the same direction thus far without success it was the working men who held out and so bent were they on their original scheme that i was obliged to have recourse to les grands moyens and i told them that a proceeding which would certainly produce a collision with the military could only be justifiable on two conditions if the position of affairs had become such that the revolution was desirable and if they thought themselves able to accomplish one to this argument after considerable discussion they at last yielded and i was able to inform mr walpole that their intention was given up i shall never forget the depth of his relief or the warmth of his expressions of gratitude 
after the working men had conceded so much to me i felt bound to comply with their request that i should attend and speak at their meeting at the agricultural hall the only meeting called by the reform league which i ever attended i had always declined being a member of the league on the avowed ground that i did not agree in its program of manhood suffrage and the ballot from the ballot i dissented entirely and i could not consent to hoist the flag of manhood suffrage even on the assurance that the exclusion of women was not intended to be implied since if one goes beyond what can be immediately carried and professes to take one's stand on a principle one should go the whole length of the principle i have entered thus particularly into this matter because my conduct on this occasion gave great displeasure to the tory and tory liberal press who have charged me ever since with having shown myself in the trials of public life intemperate and passionate i do not know what they expected from me but they had reason to be thankful to me if they knew from what i had in all probability preserved them and i do not believe it could have been done at that particular juncture by any one else no other person i believe had at that moment the necessary influence for restraining the working classes except mr gladstone and mr bright neither of whom was available mr gladstone for obvious reasons mr bright because he was out of town when some time later the tory government brought in a bill to prevent public meetings in the parks i not only spoke strongly in opposition to it but formed one of a number of advanced liberals who aided by the very late period of this session succeeded in defeating the bill by what is called talking it out it has not since been renewed on irish affairs also i felt bound to take a decided part i was one of the foremost in the deputation of members of parliament who prevailed on lord derby to spare the life of the condemned finian insurgent general burke the church question was so vigorously handled by the leaders of the party in the session of eighteen sixty eight as to require no more from me than an emphatic adhesion but the land question was by no means in so advanced a position the superstitions of landlordism had up to that time been little challenged especially in parliament and the backward state of the question so far as concerned the parliamentary mind was evidenced by the extremely mild measure brought in by lord russell's government in eighteen sixty six which nevertheless could not be carried on that bill i delivered one of my most careful speeches in which i attempted to lay down some of the principles of the subject in a manner calculated less to stimulate friends than to conciliate and convince opponents the engrossing subject of parliamentary reform prevented either this bill or one of a similar character brought about by lord derby's government from being carried through they never got beyond the second reading 
Meanwhile, the signs of Irish disaffection had become much more decided. The demand of complete separation between the two countries had assumed a menacing aspect, and there were few who did not feel if there was still any chance of reconciling Ireland to the British connection, it could only be by the adoption of much more thorough reforms in the territorial and social relations of the country than had been contemplated. The time seemed to me to have come when it would be useful to speak out my whole mind, and the result was my pamphlet england and ireland which was written in the winter of eighteen sixty seven and published shortly before the commencement of the session of eighteen sixty eight the leading features of the pamphlet were on the one hand an argument to show the undesirableness for ireland as well as england of separation between the countries and on the other a proposal for settling the land question by giving to the existing tenants a permanent tenure at a fixed rent to be assessed after due inquiry by the state. The pamphlet was not popular, except in Ireland, as I did not expect it to be. But if no measure short of that which I proposed would do full justice to Ireland or afford a prospect of conciliating the mass of the Irish people, the duty of proposing it was imperative. While if, on the other hand, there was any intermediate course which had a claim to a trial, I knew that to propose something which would be called extreme was the true way not to impede but to facilitate a more moderate experiment it is most improbable that a measure conceding so much of the tenantry as mr gladstone's irish land bill would have been proposed by government or could have been carried through parliament unless the british public had been led to perceive that a case might be made and perhaps a party formed for a measure considerably stronger. It is the character of the British people, or at least of the higher and middle classes, who pass muster for the British people, that to induce them to approve of any change, it is necessary that they should look upon it as a middle course. They think every proposal extreme and violent, unless they hear of some other proposal going still farther upon which their antipathy to extreme views may discharge itself so it proved in the present instance my proposal was condemned but any scheme for irish land reform short of mine came to be thought moderate by comparison i may observe that the attacks made on my plan usually gave a very incorrect idea of its nature it was usually discussed as a proposal that the state should buy up the land and become the universal landlord, though in fact it only offered to each individual landlord this as an alternative, if he liked better to sell his estate than to retain it on the new conditions, and I fully anticipated that most landlords would continue to prefer the position of landowners to that of government annuitants. 
and would retain their existing relation to their tenants often on more indulgent terms than the full rents on which the compensation to be given them by government would have been based this and many other explanations i gave in a speech on ireland in the debate on mr maguire's resolution early in the session of eighteen sixty eight a corrected report of this speech together with my speech on mr fortescue's bill has been published not by me but by my permission in ireland another public duty of a most serious kind it was my lot to have to perform both in and out of parliament during these years a disturbance in jamaica provoked in the first instance by injustice and exaggerated by rage and panic to the premeditated rebellion had been the motive or excuse for taking hundreds of innocent lives by military violence or by sentence of what were called court-martial continuing for weeks after the brief disturbance had been put down with many added atrocities of destruction of property logging women as well as men and a general display of the brutal recklessness which usually prevails when fire and sword are let loose the perpetrators of those deeds were defended and applauded in england by the same kind of people who had so long upheld negro slavery and it seemed at first as if the british nation was about to incur the disgrace of letting pass without even a protest excesses of authority as revolting as any of those for which when perpetuated by the instruments of other governments englishmen can hardly find terms sufficient to express their abhorrence after a short time however an indignant feeling was roused and voluntary association formed itself under the name of jamaica committee to take such deliberation and action as the case might admit of and adhesions poured in from all parts of the country i was abroad at the time but i sent in my name to the committee as soon as i heard of it and took an active part in the proceedings from the time of my return there was much more at stake than only justice to the negroes imperative as was that consideration the question was whether the british dependencies and eventually perhaps great britain itself were to be under the government of law or of military license whether the lives and persons of british subjects are at the mercy of any two or three officers however raw and inexperienced or reckless and brutal whom a panic-stricken governor or other functionary may assume the right to constitute into a so-called court-martial this question could only be decided by an appeal to the tribunals and such an appeal the committee determined to make their determination led to a change in the chairmanship of the committee as the chairman mr charles buxton thought it not unjust indeed but inexpedient to prosecute governor irie and his principal subordinates in the criminal court 
but a numerously attended general meeting of the association having decided this point against him mr buxton withdrew from the committee though continuing to work in the cause and i was quite unexpectedly on my own part proposed and elected chairman it came in consequence my duty to represent the committee in the house of commons sometimes by putting questions to the government sometimes as the recipient of the questions more or less provocative addressed by individual members to myself but especially as speaker in the important debate originated in the session of eighteen sixty six by mr buxton and the speech i then delivered is that which i should probably select as the best of my speeches in parliament for more than two years we carried on the combat trying every avenue legally open to us to the courts of criminal justice a bench of magistrates in one of the most tory counties in england dismissed our case we were more successful before the magistrates at bow street which gave an opportunity to the lord chief justice of the queen's bench sir alexander cockburn for delivering his celebrated charge which settled the law of the question in favour of liberty as far as it is in the power of a judge's charge to settle it there however our success ended for the old bailey grand jury by throwing out our bill prevented the case from coming to trial it was clear that to bring english functionaries to the bar of a criminal court for abuses of power committed against negroes and mulattoes was not a popular proceeding with the english middle classes we had however redeemed so far as lay in us the character of our country by showing that there was at any rate a body of persons determined to use all the means which the law afforded to obtain justice for the injured we had elicited from the highest criminal judge in the nation an authoritative declaration that the law was what we maintained it to be and we had given an emphatic warning to those who might be tempted to similar guilt hereafter that though they might escape the actual sentence of a criminal tribunal they were not safe against being put to some trouble and expense in order to avoid it colonial governors and other persons in authority will have a considerable motive to stop short of such extremities in future end of section twenty recording by tony richardson